Chapter 4. A Place of Refreshment O taste and see that the Lord is good, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Andrew came in angry, his face was flushed red. I'd been conversing with Dan, my administrator, when Andrew burst through the door and slumped into a chair across from me. I'm really struggling, he moaned. Do you realise how many hours I've put in these last few weeks? He was one of our interns. He was as exuberant as he was new until his excitement for ministry faded with late night pizzas and early morning setups. I don't even have a social life. I'll probably never get married. I can't keep going like this. I have to get out of the ministry. Dan spoke first in a grandfather-like tones that never sounded condescending. Sensing something deeper than an extensive schedule of activities, like a doctor applying pressure on various areas and asking, does this hurt? Dan pressed Andrew in an area that made him uncomfortable. Andrew, have you been doing your devotions? What in the world does that have to do with this? Andrew replied, exasperated and defensive. I don't have any time for devotions. I'm always too busy. I'm on a dead-end run. I weighed in. Andrew, why don't you take the next two weeks and commit to one thing? Don't come in till 10 each morning. Take the first two hours and do your devotions. Make them rich and meaningful. We will pay you to spend that time with God one-on-one. Then I promise, after two weeks, if you still want out, I will give you a nice severance and my blessing. That wasn't the answer he was looking for. Maybe he would have been more into sympathy and a week's paid vacation, but that would have missed the target. Now go, straight away, I prompted. I've discovered that whenever you need to change something, always start small, but start now. Andrew reluctantly took our advice and left. Two weeks later, I saw him setting up some chairs for a gathering. Well, Andrew, do you still want to leave the ministry? Leave the ministry, he quipped. Ministry is my life. There's nothing like it. Ah, I said, you've been doing your devotions. Keeping wisdom fresh. This life essential isn't a cure-all for every problem you'll face. But one thing's for sure. Neglecting devotions will cause you more problems more quickly than just about anything you can name. Spending unrushed time alone with God in his word releases a fountain of refreshment from the very core of your being. The Bible calls Solomon the wisest man who ever lived. When you read the account of his early years on the throne, you see example after shining example of how divine wisdom enriched his life and his nation. You hear his prayer for wisdom, not for gold or fame or political power, and you feel in awe. You consider his first ruling in an extraordinarily difficult case, and you shake your head in wonder. You consider his efficient organisation of government, his far-reaching studies in botany and zoology, and you can understand why the Bible says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. And yet, if you know Solomon's whole story, you know that in the end, he wound up a colossal failure. Why? How did it happen? 
How could he go from being the wisest man who ever lived to one of the Bible's most shocking failures? Apparently, Solomon forgot where his wisdom came from. At some point in his career, Solomon stopped drawing from the bottomless well in favour of depending upon his own. The man who defined wisdom for multiplied generations became a fool. In his stunning folly, he planted the seeds for a disastrous civil war that spawned the downfall of his entire people. It should never have come to this. Solomon's decline began as soon as he ceased his daily treks to God's well of wisdom, a lesson he himself had recorded in his earlier years. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What happens when someone forgets or rejects the beginning of wisdom? All the rest of his wisdom collapses in on itself like a house of cards in a stiff windstorm. Solomon became no longer teachable. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. Solomon ought to be the ultimate reminder that it doesn't matter how smart you are, how much you know, or how many degrees trail your name. If you shun God's counsel and turn away from the mentors he has provided, you're in trouble. It may not be immediately apparent, but in the end it will be all too obvious to everyone. The word will keep you prepared. The Holy Spirit knows all about the looming grey clouds that will descend on you next month. You don't, of course, but he does, and he will prepare you for what's just over the horizon. As you receive his wisdom, you deposit it into the archives of your heart, and it will bear fruit at exactly the right time. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a story we usually call the parable of the sower. When the disciples later ask him to interpret, he explains that the sower's seed represents the word of God. When he plants a seed of his word in you, it doesn't necessarily come to fruition today. Fruit can and will be harvested down the road. How often I've been doing devotions on a particular passage and wondered, why am I reading this? It has nothing to do with me. But remember, that seed takes time to germinate and grow. Could it be that God wants to plant a particular seed in you today because he knows that in a few weeks or months you're going to need the crop of wisdom that will come from it? This deliberate training of our minds is much like the training of an athlete. When you're in a race, where do you get the strength to run it? In the middle of the contest? Hardly. You got it weeks and months ago when you were pounding the pavement day after day, paying the price to be in top shape. It's the strength of months and years and even a lifetime of practice that allows a world-class musician like Yo-Yo Ma to play as he does. He didn't get his expertise yesterday, and he didn't wake up with it this morning. He built up and developed layer after layer of excellence over years and years of investment. Now today, he performs so naturally and with such genius because of his hard work and discipline. The same is true of our spiritual lives. You will be facing some very significant decisions in your near future. I don't know what they are, and neither do you. But the Spirit does, and His assignment is to bring you the wisdom and the grace necessary to succeed. The Word will keep you fruitful. It's interesting to see what people will grasp in the hope of achieving fruitfulness, whether in their love life, business, or finances.
Some use chain letters, some use horoscopes, some use a porcelain cat or a rabbit's foot. Here's a letter from years ago that my daughter's friends passed around in junior high. Once you touch this letter, you must keep it. This is a love test. It started in 1877. You must keep it, copy it word for word and give it to five people, not boys, within five days. On the fifth day, drink a glass of milk or water and say a boy's name, first and last, and within two days he will ask you out or say, I like you. This is not a joke. It has worked for many, many years, and if you break this chain letter, you will have bad luck with boys. I doubt it. It doesn't matter if the chain letter started in 1677. It has no power at all to make you a more positive, likeable, attractive, productive or godly person. What do you depend on to help you achieve success in life? The Bible has a very definite take on the question. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will have your way prosperous, and then you will have success. What's the secret of achieving a successful and fruitful life? It all comes down to what you do with God's words. Do you want to make your way prosperous? Would you like to experience success in all that you do? If so, God says that you need to put his word into your heart, meditate on it, then do what it says by tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want success, that's how to get it. Jesus said essentially the same thing. He explained that his father uses his word to prune us in order to make us fruitful. Listen to his description of what makes for a successful life. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Jesus is claiming that as you remain in him, and his words remain in you, There will be an obvious activity of the Father flowing through your life. Your desires become the Father's desires. Your heart becomes the Father's heart. And everyone will be able to see the Father at work through you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You are already clean because of the word. The Father's main tool for pruning you and so helping you to enjoy a deeply satisfying, productive life is the Word of God. The devil knows that if he can keep you from the Word, you'll simply dry up. Have you experienced that? I have. When we dry up, fruit tends to disappear from our lives. That's why the devil never attacks your fruitfulness. Instead, he attacks your relationship with the Lord by trying to keep you away from the word. As you dry up, you become more vulnerable to temptation. Suddenly, this tore dry thing looks like a good option, or that unhealthy relationship looks enticing, or those skewed ways of thinking seem right. 
Everything becomes negotiable. Remember this. If the devil can keep you away from the word, he steals the father's main tool for fruitfulness in your life. Someone once said to me, Wayne, the word will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from the word. You choose. Let God's word bear fruit in your life. Make your way prosperous and successful by spending time in God's word, carefully listening to what he wants to say to you. The word enables you to recognize his voice. Jesus illustrated this when he spoke of a shepherd with his flock. The sheep follow the shepherd because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. But how do sheep know the shepherd's voice? They know it because they hear it so much. They've heard him sing as he leads them across the hills and the fields. They've heard his comforting tones in the night when coyotes are howling in the distance. They recognize his familiar tone and timbre. They know his common phrasings. They know his voice's usual pace, how it rises in the presence of danger and how it goes silky soft in the presence of hurt. They know its authority, its confidence, its care and concern. And though they will follow that voice anywhere, they will not follow a stranger. They don't know his voice. Years ago, bank tellers were trained to detect counterfeit $100 bills. Trainers put the tellers in a room and showed them the genuine currency. They held classes and seminars to teach the tellers about the most indistinguishable, almost imperceptible patterns in the real article. The tellers could smell the genuine bills, run their fingers across the fiber and the ink, almost taste them. Then, when the trainers thought the tellers were ready, they tested them. They put the tellers in front of a conveyor belt loaded with genuine bills. A supervisor, without being seen, would occasionally insert a counterfeit bill onto the belt. The tellers would immediately look at it, pull it off and say, I don't know what's wrong with this one, but it's not genuine. Something's not right. Nope, it looks funny. How did they recognise the counterfeit bills so quickly? Is it because they studied the fakes? No, it's because they took a long time to study the real thing. In a similar way, we can distinguish between counterfeit voices and the actual voice of the Lord in only one way. We need to know his voice very well. When we know intimately even the smallest, faintest facets of God's genuine character, we'll be able to detect a counterfeit voice at once. The only way to develop that kind of familiarity is through a consistent exposure to God in his word. Only by sitting with the divine mentor will we ever get to know him intimately and become able to recognize the voice of an imposter. Paul tells us, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Why else do you think Jesus warned us? False Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. So again, how do we learn to properly identify God's voice? How can we detect a counterfeit, an imposter, a fraud? The best way I know of is to prepare in advance each time you open God's word, recognising that it's in its pages you are hearing him.
The more you read, the more you are learning to recognise his voice. The word helps you make wise decisions. Did you know that you make approximately 300 decisions each day? What time will I get up? Will I hit the snooze button when the alarm rings? What will I wear? What will I have for breakfast? What will I tackle first at work? And on it goes. Decision after decision after decision. Of those 300 decisions, perhaps 10% or 30 decisions will have potentially life-altering ramifications. Which relationship should I pursue? What college should I attend? Is it time to start a family? Should I consider that job offer? Do I try to beat this red light? As you weigh all those options, you're going to draw from some well, the information and the motivation that mobilises your choices. Into which well will you send down your bucket? If it's not the right well, beware. Maybe it's hormones or a secret fantasy or the insistent voice of the flesh or peer pressure or fear or defensiveness. By the time you graduate from high school, statistics say you will have watched more than 16,000 hours of television. You will have spent 14,000 hours in an educational institution. And if you go to church for just two hours a week, you will have spent under 2,000 hours getting spiritual help. So to draw on, when it comes time to make a decision, you will have eight times as much TV and seven times as much world and culture as education as you'll have of church. Can you see the problem? There's no substitute for drawing from the well of God's word. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. God gives us his wisdom as we linger in his word. As it becomes a part of us, increasingly we will know that this is the right decision to make or that is the right thing to say. We'll know not only what is wrong and what is right, but what is wise and what is foolish. In our beginning stages as a Christian, we will wrestle with right and wrong, and we should. It will take our hearts and minds some time to debate difficult and challenging issues and questions. But once these have been settled, we graduate. Most of us will not stumble over the right and wrong, but rather over those that are wise or unwise. Some time ago, a great Christian friend called me and said, Wayne, I'm done. My marriage is finished. What's going on? I asked. I didn't mean to do anything wrong, he said. I wasn't doing anything wrong. That's good, I said. But I'm finished. I'm in deep weeds. So what happened? He proceeded to tell me a story that, with a few changes, could have been repeated over and over again from the stories of many. It was innocent, I tell you. You see, a girl in my office was going through a problem at home. She just needed someone to talk to. So we had some lunch at a nearby restaurant, and after our meal, we sat in my car in the parking lot. We sat there for a while. I guess a few things I said must have helped her, because she leaned over and gave me a sort of thank you kiss on the lips. And just then, my wife drove by. You are finished, I said. 
but I didn't do anything wrong, he objected. No, I said, but you sure were unwise. Wayne, what in the world am I going to do? Do you know what my friend's real problem was? Although he wasn't operating in the realm of right or wrong, he failed in the area of wise and unwise. I said, your lack of wisdom started at the office when you gave yourself to this. Instead of listening and handing her over to another sister or referring her to a counsellor, you took on that job and went from one foolish step to another. No, you didn't do anything wrong, but you did something very unwise. It took my friend eight months to rebuild his wife's trust. What made it even more difficult for him was that he'd been making unwise decisions all along. By the time this last incident took place, his marriage already teetered on a very fragile foundation. Remember, wisdom doesn't have to come at a high price. In fact, many have already paid the exorbitant tuition to enrol in the School of Hard Knocks. Now they await our audience so that they might transfer that wisdom to us. Wisdom cost Samson his marriage, his family, his ministry, and both of his eyes. The wisdom he garnered from that pain he holds in trust for you and me. We have only to visit with him for those gems to be deposited on our behalf. David paid dearly for the wisdom he accumulated. It cost him a son, Absalom. It cost him his wives being defiled by Absalom. It cost him his infant son with Bathsheba. Insights that we can't possibly afford. They're ours for receiving. The classroom is set. The instructors wait for their students. God is smarter than we are. We don't know what God knows. The sooner we accept this, the better off we'll be. Listening recently to my friend Isaiah, he reminded me again what God said. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. On a human level, it's like a first grader telling Praetor Eirik Tchaikovsky he doesn't think his music has amounted to much. A 14-year-old basketball player saying to Michael Jordan he can't shoot. A 24 handicapped golfer criticising Tiger Woods' swing. Yet we still think that God doesn't have much to say, and if he does, it's more of a take-it-or-leave-it option. We rashly take matters into our own hands. We manoeuvre and manipulate to get what we want. We know it's not really the best, yet we'll show people the results and say, look what God gave me. Again, that's backward. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. The sooner we accept coaching from biblical mentors God has assigned us, the better off we'll be. How much better to find a problem with our car by having a professional look at it over ahead of time than to be kicking tyres on the side of the highway, cursing the automaker. During a visit to an automotive shop, I noticed an interesting sign. If you bring in your car before it breaks down, we can do the maintenance and our rate is $30 an hour. If you wait until it breaks and then you bring it in, the rate is $50 an hour. And if it broke and you tried fixing it yourself and now you bring it in, it's $120 an hour. Someone once said to me, 
The secret of growing in divine wisdom is to come to God stupid. Tell him you don't know a thing. Tell him you need to know how to think, how to tie your shoes, how to win friends and influence anybody. With that kind of heart, God does his best work. When he is looking for receptacles of divine wisdom, he looks for PhDs, those are who are poor, hungry and desperate. These are the people who fuel the excitement of our divine mentors. Like the fabled guardians of the Holy Grail, they've been anticipating our company. Let's not keep them waiting. Part 2. How to Listen for God's Voice Chapter 5. One Thing for Martha My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. There's never enough time in the day for life, is there? A few weeks ago, I returned from a 10-day trip to Australia and when you traverse the globe, time can do strange things. I left on a Sunday evening and I arrived back home on Sunday morning. It was living the old Beatles tune eight days a week. That week, I would have an extra day. But seven days later, I was no further ahead than when I began. I still needed more time to accomplish what I wanted to. Time will not wait. It cannot be borrowed. You cannot buy time. It ruthlessly hastens by without afterthought. We can either find the most priority investments or we can squander our resources. Time will confiscate every minute we leave idle. Returning for a moment to the Mary Martha story, let's just say that Martha was the original Martha Stewart. Completely irritated and frustrated with her sister for not helping out in the kitchen, there Mary was, sitting at Jesus' feet, just listening to him speak as if there weren't enough things to be done. Martha blustered that she shouldn't have to shoulder the load alone. But when she complained, The teacher lovingly told her that there's one thing better and that this one thing is what's needed. Only one thing. Mary had found the headwaters of life, the source of heaven's artesian well, the unambiguous source for the Christian, that which fuels, ignites, guides, sustains and empowers. Absolutely everything is time with the Master. Quiet, reverent, unhurried moments in the presence of Christ just as Mary modelled for us. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, Jesus declares to us. One who apparently got this lesson was the Apostle Paul, for in the little book of Philippians he describes his life's desire, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What was the source? Clearly, just as for Mary, it was to know Christ. And how did Paul plan on drawing near to Jesus? What was his strategy for coming to better know his Saviour? Fortunately for us, he outlined it shortly thereafter. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is head, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amazing. First, Jesus tells us, only one thing is needed. 
Then Paul writes, one thing I do. Could anything be that simple? Jesus didn't say, just 10 things are needed, nor did Paul say, 15 things I do. When life comes down to its most basic issues, when you boil life down to the newbies, as Chuck Swindle used to say, the Bible makes it very basic for us. It's just one thing, getting back to the source. Playing scales. Watch renowned performers. All top-shelf athletes have a training regime they repeat day in and day out, again and again and again. Singular regimes will be repeated without apology, and in many ways their practices may be seemingly unconnected with what they will do under the spotlights. A world-class athlete gets up every morning and does a certain calibre of core exercises. Jerry Rice, one of football's all-time greats, said during his playing days, I may be able to run and receive passes, but I also do a thousand sit-ups every day. Concert pianists best illustrate this. No matter the status the artist might have, he will always do one certain activity every day. One thing, scales. Major scales, minor scales, the Aloean scale, the Locrian scale. Why? Ignace Jan Podowski was a renowned Polish pianist who lived in the first half of the 20th century. When his government requested that he play concerts in order to raise money, Pedorowski, a patriot, a willing citizen, replied, I will be part of the war effort under one condition. You must allow me to every day to continue playing scales three hours a day. Pay me for eight hours and I will play scales for three. They didn't hesitate to accept his offer. Why would someone of Paderowski's enormous talent insist on playing scales for three hours daily? He had a ready answer. If I skip one day of scales, he explained, when I play in the concert, I notice it. If I skip two days of scales, my coach will notice. And if I skip three days, the world will notice. Regularly playing scales develops and maintains the dexterity of the performer's fingers. It gives him the ability to move through the most difficult pieces with speed and accuracy. Whatever the score may call for, with the right practice, he will play it with confidence and skill. Without a regular diet of scales, the pianist might open up a difficult score, sometimes even an easy one, and see an ocean of black marks on a sea of white. He braves the punctuated storm only with continued fumbling struggle and perhaps not a little embarrassment. Every disciple who has enrolled in Wisdom's life course does scales, daily, consistently, with committed fidelity. Mary taught me this discipline. Coupled with Jesus' commendation, her example increases its importance. Daily Devotions To achieve success, to be productive, to feel satisfied and fulfilled, to become an important part of the solution rather than a significant part of the problem, we must practice the same regime day in and day out, daily devotions. When you miss your devotions, one day you notice. When you miss them two days, your spouse and kids notice. And when you miss them three days, the world notices. When you and I skip our scales, 
In no time at all, we start falling back on worldly knowledge and wisdom. We may not even realise that's what we're doing, but it's almost inevitable. Furthermore, we get spiritually weak. If we go without food for several days, how do we start to feel and act? We get cranky, suffer headaches, become abnormally edgy. Starvation causes us to make chaotic choices. Every action is imbalanced, every motive skewed. Neglecting to feed our spirit and ignoring the hunger of our soul causes spiritual weakness. This results in desperate decisions and stinking thinking. A starved soul and a famished heart will find you in a party, a pity party, the surroundings, a pitiful dump. Regularly and consistently practicing our scales will embolden us to climb out of the landfill and exchange our odorous clothes for a fragrant wisdom that will mentor us away from the slippery slopes that snared us in the first place. Correcting back to the source. I finally relented. I signed up for two weeks of golf lessons. I had built my game entirely on trial and error. I learned simply by watching others and when I blistered the ball down the fairway, I felt great. But I couldn't tell you why it went so far and straight. Then, on the next tee, more often as not, my ball would discover new territory, bounce into the adjacent fairway, sometimes even hit a house. And I could never tell you what went wrong. I would just play the probabilities. Some days I would feel like Tiger Woods, and other days I would be in the woods. I became somewhat fatalistic about golf, like the old Doris Day hit from the 50s, K Sarah Sarah. My coach, however, wasn't buying any of this. He seemed to think that it had less to do with fate and more to do with my basic swing. Imagine that. So, for two solid weeks, he drilled me in the basics. Nothing else. He wanted me to develop the groove of what a correct swing should feel like. No, whatever will be, will be, with him. He was convinced that learning the foundational mechanics would have a direct impact on my game. Why did he limit our lessons to the basics? So that when I sliced the ball, I would know why I sliced it, and when I hooked it, why it happened. And most important, how to correct back without having to repeat the error over and over until some divine miracle occurred to restore my drives to the fairway directly in front of me. You can hit a good shot without knowing the correct mechanics, and you won't know why you hit it well. You also won't be able to ensure that you hit it that way again anytime soon. But when you know how to get back to the basics, everything straightens out. In the Christian life, daily devotions will correct you back to what's right. Not necessarily who's right, but what's right. For when you make a mistake, daily time in God's word is a divine global positioning system to teach you how to find your way back to where you got off the path. Don't skimp on the basics. I heard about a young man who wanted to make a living in construction. He had a talent for it, but not much money. So he bought some tools at a discount outlet. He got hired at a job site and seemed to be doing fine. A day or two into the project, however, the foreman inspected his work and discovered that everything he'd done was slightly askew. 
Despite his hard labour, they had to redo everything he had touched on the company's time and dollar. The frustrated foreman called him in and said, Son, I know you can do good work, but I have to let you go. You're costing us too much money. What could the young man say? He knew he was to blame. He just didn't know what he could have done differently. He picked up his tools and turned to leave. Wait a minute, the foreman said. Let me see your tape measure. When he laid his own tape measure alongside the young man's, the source of the trouble immediately became clear. Where did you get this thing? The foreman asked. When the dejected young man told his boss about the discount store, the foreman replied, Well, that's your problem. You bought a cheap tape measure. It's wrong. Son, in the future, don't skimp on the basics. When those are wrong, everything you do will be wrong. The young man's tool wasn't off by much, hardly noticeable at first, maybe, but had he continued to work with that faulty tape measure, the problems would have compounded and magnified. Gradually, they would have escalated into a full-blown fiasco. Life is like that. When you continue down a path that's screwed, even slightly, you may find catastrophe or chaos gaying on your heels no matter how hard you try to outrun them. A basic logical theorem says that if your starting premise is incorrect, then every subsequent conclusion will have a high percentage of also being incorrect. For example, if you think 1 plus 1 equals 3, then every equation involving that premise will lead to a faulty conclusion. When a basic presumption is wrong, then everything that proceeds from that basic understanding may be equally flawed no matter how sincere you may be. In the Christian life, the Bible is your basic premise. You may have a favourite contemporary author or media personality, but he or she can never substitute for the original. I suspect all of us are off by at least an eighth of an inch, and most of us can't claim to be even that close. You have to correct back to the original, to God's word. This is your primary source. No immunity from pain, only wisdom. The mentors of the Bible won't exonerate you from the pains of life. There are necessary hurts that soften the heart, turn us towards compassion and deepen humility. However, regularly sitting at the Lord's feet will keep you from unnecessary suffering. It will prevent you from bringing needless pain upon yourself. Suppose you have an angry encounter with your spouse Without knowing what a healthy biblical marriage should be, you have no idea how to dial it back. You flounder with trial and error attempts, and by the time you finally get something to work, you're both badly bruised. Wandering aimlessly through a forest when you're off the proven path can leave each of you gasping for air, overly cautious about connection and intimacy, and dubious about each other's sincerity and intentions. Again, being in the Bible every day installs within us a self-correcting mechanism, a spiritual GPS. Having this in place and finally calibrated, when something does go wrong, we know why it went wrong, and best of all, how to correct back before we are down the path of no return. We can't afford not to sit at his feet as a daily regime, because each day will have its own challenges. Doing devotions should not be our last thought, but our first. 
This life essential cannot be a burden. We must make it a joy, an everyday joy. Wherever I happen to be in the world, people know exactly what I'm doing so long as it's 6.30am, my time. My son Aaron, who is now a young pastor, has developed the same habit. Every once in a while, I'll call him at 6.30am and say, Good morning, where are you doing devotions today? Likewise, he'll occasionally call me at 6.30 and ask the same thing. It's our custom. It's another special link between us, no matter where we are. I don't want my son to copy me, necessarily. I just want him to tap into the same source I tap into each day. And it isn't original with us, of course. Millions of believers throughout history have done the same custom. They all got their living water from the same well. He came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the mountain of olives. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Devotions were a habit for Jesus. Every day he spent time with the Father. Everyone around him knew this was his personal custom. They would say, Jesus, oh yes, I know where he is. He's out there somewhere in the hills having his quiet time. It's his custom. He never misses. People knew Jesus by the things he was accustomed to doing on a daily basis. He was consistent. Everyone knew it. That's what makes him so trustworthy. If someone were to describe who you are by your habits, would one of those habits be your daily quiet time? You can celebrate God in a crowd, but you can only get to know God one-on-one. It's hard to hear his voice in a multitude or when surrounded by distractions. You need alone time with him, time in solitude, where you can really hear his heart. Each culture has its own customs. As the people of God, let's make this one of ours. Jesus started us off. Let's correct back to him. What pleases God? Sometimes I spend time with Enoch, another of my mentors. The Bible says, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, but then he was no more, because God took him away. In the New Testament, we're told, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not have to experience death. He could not be found, because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleases God. The Bible doesn't say for sure, but I have an idea that Enoch and the Lord got together at the same time or times every day. I picture them taking long walks together along the pathways of the young earth, Enoch opening his heart to God about everything, God enjoying the kind of relationship he'd had with Adam and Eve back in the garden. Then there came a day when the Lord said something like, Enoch, I love this so much. Why don't you just come on home with me? We'll continue this over on the other side. Walking with God was probably a habit Enoch had cultivated since he was a young man, which of course may have been around 80 or 90 in those days. Speculation aside, the point is, I'm sure Enoch looked forward to those times. They became the highlight of his day. Developing the habit. Building a habit like this can be fun. If the new habit isn't something you're used to doing, then link it up with something you enjoy. For example, I enjoy good coffee. 
So in the morning, I link up to a good cup of coffee and a scone at the local cafe where I have my devotions. All of it together has become an enjoyable habit. Coffee, scone, my Bible and journal. It all flows together in my mind. I look forward to my time with my mentors in that shop. It's the highlight of my day and I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit and my best friends all look forward to it too. Anna, my wife, links up her time with a steaming cup of tea in the quietness of the evening. She switches on a cosy lamp, sips on her tea, reads the word and writes in her journal. I often see her with her Bible enjoying the day as it closes. Those will be warm memories in my heart for many years to come. Experts say it takes 21 days to develop a habit. I want to encourage you for the next three weeks to cordon off about 40 minutes of your morning or evening and take the time to delve into the Word of God, listening for what the divine mentors have been waiting to tell you. Remember, daily time with the Lord is the Christians practicing the scales. The assignments God gives to you and me will become less difficult for us in a proportion to our faithfulness in sitting every day before his feet, listening to his word. Spiritual maturity comes in layers. Establish a daily time as one of your life priorities. Blend it with something you enjoy and then begin to do it every day. One offensive weapon. The sixth chapter of Ephesians describes the spiritual armour God has provided for his children. It speaks of the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, the shoes that are the preparation, readiness of the gospel of peace. Did you happen to notice that all these pieces of armour are for defensive purposes? The passage mentions only one weapon for offence, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. If we're going to be leaders in our families, our communities and our churches, then we must become a people who know how to take ground and move forward. To do that effectively, you have to know God's word and learn how to use it effectively. You will need to know where crucial passages are and memorize key verses. It will be pleasant if you keep them, the words of the wise within you, that they may be ready on your lips. Use the sword of the Spirit to renew your mind. The point isn't about buying a beautiful Bible with gilded edges, but being able to effectively use it. If you can't, you'll spend the lion's share of your life on the defensive. If any athletics team's only goal is keeping the other team from scoring too much on us, their history, it's a defeatist objective to simply lose by fewer points this game than the last one. If all you're doing is playing defence, if all you're hoping is to keep from being embarrassed again, then you'll continue to lose. Victory only comes to those who learn how to go on offence and then succeed on the offensive. That's exactly what the Word of God is designed to help you do. Know your weapon. Get intimately acquainted with your own Bible, much like you would get accustomed to your own musical instrument. For example, When I play, I want my guitar. I have it set up so that I can close my eyes and still know where everything is. If I pick up someone else's guitar, the strings are at a different height. There's a different weight balance. A gauge of strings is odd. The body is bigger and thicker. The whole thing might exude a different sound. 
It's still a guitar, yet it's not my guitar. You need to know your Bible and how to navigate through it. The Bible calls itself your sword, and if you're about to go into battle, you'd better know your weapon, how it fits in your hand, how it feels when you swing it, and what outcome will result for anything it's wielded against. You wouldn't think of going into battle with a plastic sword you bought at a toy shop. Knowing about your weapon is no comparison to knowing how to use it. In the heat of battle, it doesn't matter if you know who published your Bible or who added the study notes. What you have hidden in your heart will be the limbus test. When you archive the word of God into your heart, securing his words in the inner chambers, the Holy Spirit promises to bring back all he's taught you. For him to do this, you first have to pack it away. You must store it securely in your archives, then it will be ready on your lips. What do you have stored on the memory card of your heart? If you wonder, try writing down all the references of scripture that you've memorised on a sheet of paper. How many will that list yield? Is it more than John 3:16? The Spirit of God promises to bring truth back to your remembrance, but there has to be something archived for him to bring back. Jesus was ready when the devil came to tempt him. Time after time, when Satan made an enticing proposal, Jesus said, It is written. And then he went on the offensive with particular scripture passages. Satan had no choice but to flee. It is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, your only offensive weapon in this spiritual conflict that will be your protection, that will buoy you up and give you the strength and confidence you need for victory. Remember, you don't have the necessary wisdom to win this battle, so we must draw the needed wisdom from somewhere else. That's exactly what the Bible, God's Biblios library, is for. Store it in your heart and you will gain wisdom beyond your lifetime. A personal testimony. Be still, the Lord tells us, and know that I am God. If we're going to hear him effectively, we cannot afford to skimp on our daily devotions. We must, as Mary did, choose the one thing that will affect absolutely everything else. It needs to be established and guarded with utmost sincerity. Out of that sacred enclosure in our life, God will show up and he will speak. The inception of New Hope Christian Fellowship in Hawaii came with this in mind. I knew we needed to get out of the blocks correctly. I knew we needed to hear from God every day, every step of the way. Five months before we began, I called our administrator and said, we must be hearing from God for every step we take. So would you meet with me each morning at 6.30 and we will do devotions together. We'll read through the Bible systematically and then when God speaks to us about some aspect we need to give attention to, we'll write it in a journal and talk about what he's saying. Then we'll define how we will be different today because of what God has said to us. He readily agreed. So that's what we did. For the next year and a half, we met every morning and out of that sacred experience, New Hope was born. Today, we do all we can to encourage each attendee to develop a daily habit of devotions. We provide instruction, share success stories, read from our own journals and distribute copies of our life journal. 
All of this makes the whole process simple and readily available. A book that will change your life. Have you ever seen the movie The Never-Ending Story? The opening scene takes us to an alley where we meet the main character, a young boy named Bastian. To avoid being bullied, he runs into an old bookstore owned by an old man named Coranda. As Bastian loiters, his attention is captured by a special book. What's that book about? asks Bastian. Oh, this is something special, replies Coranda. Well, what is it? says the curious boy. The old man again evades the question. Look, your books are safe. While you're reading them, you get to become Tarzan or Robinson Crusoe. But that's what I like about them, says Bastian. Yes, but afterwards, you get to be a little boy again. What do you mean? Listen, Coranda instructs, motioning the boy to come nearer. Have you ever been Captain Nemo, trapped inside your submarine while the giant squid was attacking you? Yes. Weren't you afraid you couldn't escape? But it's only a story, protests the boy. That's what I'm talking about. The ones you read are safe. To which Bastian says, And that one isn't? That's the kind of book God has given us. I have discovered that the Bible is not a safe book. When I read it, I enter it, and it challenges me, provokes me, and changes me. I cannot remain the same. The Bible is not safe. It is eternal. The Bible is not a passing thought. It is God's final decision. The Bible is not a story. It's my story. It's your story.